0: Conscious Pathways, the podcast where we explore the intersection of education and social justice through transformative conversations in education. I'm your host, Brittany, and today I have a wonderful guest to share with you, Raphael Bonhomme. Raphael currently teaches third grade in Washington, D.C., where he incorporates social justice and restorative justice practices into his classroom. He aims to bring in real-life challenges along with classroom concepts so that his students can be empowered to take action and become empathetic, open-minded, and global citizens. What I loved most about this conversation with Raphael was just how easy he was to talk to. He has such a calm and confident demeanor and such a wealth of knowledge and education and just a hunger for knowledge and growing that it just was such an empowering and delightful conversation to have. We talked about everything from social justice, restorative practices, we talked about project-based learning, our love for Reggio Emilia schools, and if you're ready to learn, laugh, and just grow, then let's hop into this conversation. Hello and welcome to Conscious Pathways. Really excited to have you. Thank you, thank you. Well, of course. Um, so I always like to start with my guests um, and tell me a little bit more about how you became an educator. What was your inspiration to join the world of education?
1: So to join the world of education, I first didn't think I would get into education. And even as of recently, I've been trying to unpack that. What I've noticed, I'm a very giving and nurturing person. That wasn't something I was really accepted growing up, but now as an adult, I've learned to kind of embrace that part of me. Back to your question. Getting into education, I was really into art as a kid. So I wanted to do art advertising. When my mom was like, "Hey, you got to go into co- you got to go to college. That's that's a non negotiable." So I had visited a few colleges uh, in the Northeast region. Um, I grew up most of my life in Connecticut, so I looked at some schools over there, and then I looked in the DC DMV area where I currently live. And yeah, honestly, my grades just didn't get me into any of the colleges that I visited, so. It's, it's 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 interesting that now I am an educator in my own growth with that. I just wasn't motivated in high school. There wasn't anything that was motivating me. But once I got into my first college, a small state college in Connecticut, I started out doing art. After like one semester, I really didn't like how the, the instructors were telling me what to do and there was deadlines on it with art I just it's in and out in terms of I have to be in a mood to kind of do art so my mother Mm. who was a single parent mother advised me to do education because I had always taken care of my younger brothers now as an adult like I said as of recently I reflected on those comments because I actually had no choice it was like hey, my mom was working a lot and I had to step up to the plate, right? But in my 19-year-old mind, I was like, huh, yeah, you have a point. So-
0: That older sibling syndrome. It's exactly.
1: <laughs> it's a real thing. It's a real thing. That in conjunction with me reflecting on why am I in college and a lot of my peers who I was close to at the time were not going to college, I I felt as if they were just as intelligent as I was but they didn't have people in their lives to motivate them and to guide them and to be a mentor and say, hey, you know, you can take the skills and different things that you are smart at and transfer it this way, go to college, get the experience, and also meet other people from different areas. And that social aspect is very key about college as well. So those two big things, when I came to the realization like, hey, Art, I'm in and out of it. I'm in the mood. I can't do it with deadlines and things of that nature. So I jumped into it and my first college, it was, uh, they made you double major. So I was elementary education and history those both of those fields, I just fell in love with. I've always been in love with history and I spent maybe two more semesters at that college transferred to Howard Howard University, the Mecca. And um, Mm -hmm. I got my master's and I got my undergrad in history and then my minor actually in art. I still had enough art credits by that. So I got my minor in art. And then I received my master's in elementary education. So that's how I got into education.
0: Wow. I I definitely feel you I have a lot of younger siblings as well and so I I grew up with a duality because I grew up with my mom and I just had an older brother and when I would come back to the the west coast for summer I would have all these other younger siblings (laughs) so I transitioned from the youngest role to the oldest role Mm. and yeah you just kind of get thrown into being the surrogate parent sometimes yeah yeah
1: yeah, yeah. And 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 like even eventually once I became an educator my two younger brothers eventually came and lived with me here in DC. So it was that role kinda continued. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I am an elementary educator, but I've had the experience mm-hmm. of seeing what teenagers go through and going to those yes. teenage parent teacher conferences and having them, mm-hmm. you know, be on them for that. But yeah, that eldest sibling
0: mm-hmm.
1: it's it's definitely a real thing.
0: That position. yes shout out to all those older siblings out there <laughs> y'all just got an extra job that y'all didn't even ask for facts so. <laughs> i get it uh what drew you to elementary school teaching
1: so that's a good question as i said my initial reasoning for getting into it because of me transitioning from art the comments that my mom made as well as like some personal reflections but then <laughs> Something so simple as I can't teach any kids that are taller than me because I know <laughs> if I get in the classroom and there's a kid taller than me, there's going to be a power dynamic, right? So just off the rip off of that, I know, hey, I need to be in grades where the potential of a kid being taller than me is very, very minimal. And like a few years ago, there was a kid, like his eyes were right here at my nose. And at my current school, there's a kid who's in Kindergarten, kindergarten. His eyes into my chest. So I'm like, oh man, I might be I might have to go down in grade level since it's getting to this point. I don't know what kids are eating nowadays, but they're they're built different. Yeah, they're built different. <laughs> very, very built different. different. <laughs> so that is what drew me initially. I'm not even gonna lie, I'm not even gonna front. That is the main thing of why I chose elementary education. However, when I took those courses. At my first college, it really opened my mind to how I was taught when I was in elementary school. And there was a lot of rote teaching and mm-hmm. unpacking a lot of concepts, especially in mathematics, going from ver going from um memorizing facts and multiplication to then unpacking it and then seeing like what does three times four actually mean? What does four Mm -hmm. times three actually mean? Why are they different, you know? So Mm -hmm. that really helped me understand the conceptual understanding once I got into those courses and I just felt it was like easy. So like I was saying before in high school, I'm not embarrassed to say it, but my GPA was probably like a 2.7. It wasn't good. And um, yeah, once I got into education in, in my higher education, I eventually graduated magna cum laude like it, it was just it, it just came naturally like I just fell in love with it you know so mm-hmm. you know I'm still doing it so
0: I I love that I love that transition from you know not being super passionate about education you know in your K through 12 years right because as you mentioned there's a lot of that rote learning it's sometimes the passion is kind of lost in it and you, you don't feel excited about it yeah. and you know that motivation isn't there you know I always find it really interesting we want kids to be intrinsically motivated to, to go to school to do these things but given the choice like, <laughs> I, I probably wouldn't want to sit in a one building for that long period of time every single day taking classes that I don't want to take <laughs> It's hard enough in college. Like put myself in elementary school, middle school, high school. I get it.
1: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like
0: that's not easy. That's a big. That's a tall. That's a tall order that you're asking <laughs> of adolescents whose frontal lobe is not even fully developed yet. Like,
1: <laughs> I know, and they say people's brains start developing at 25. I still. I was having a conversation about this over this recent visit to California with some friends and. I don't know who they did that who the the study was done on, but that stuff needs to be updated because mm. yeah it I feel as if it is probably older than that you know mm. where people's brains are fully developed just based upon especially with the increase in technology and whatnot so to yes. to bring that to elementary school right the the attention span has just decreased so much, which has affected education as a whole. And then you have a group of individuals who are like, yeah, kids aren't the same as what they used to be. And then you have uh, like, ah, you know, we shouldn't have to do this, have to do that. And those people are still in education, right? They are passionate about Mm -hmm. helping kids. And then you have another group of people who are like, trying to do engaging things, out of the box things, blah, 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 blah. And sometimes, sometimes I sometimes I fit into that category where we take risk, and sometimes it could backfire. And sometimes it could go well for us, whether it be with admin or maybe the project that we tried to implement just didn't go the way that we wanted it to go. Maybe the kids didn't really receive it the way we thought they would receive it. And then there's probably Mm -hmm. other categories that fit. I don't like to really think binary, but there was a lot of groups and a lot of thinking in education right now, especially with the short attention span of students. Yes. And I could be making this short attention span up, but if you ask a lot of educators, they'll probably be like, (laughs) yes, the attention span has decreased tremendously. It's a pandemic.
0: It is. It is, and I am very curious to see that that data that is inevitable. It's going to come out yeah. um about these attention spans, and you know, especially after COVID, these attention spans and the increase in technology and the increase in social media. Yeah. As I even noticed it in myself. Like, I'll just right. be on TikTok randomly sometimes. Like, how did I get here? <laughs> like, get get off of this app, it's okay. like. to hide it sometimes otherwise i'm just like on it and i'm like no no get get off (laughs) go do something productive with your life please um but yeah it's so true there the attention spans i do feel like have gotten a lot shorter for young people and i think that's also contributing to some of the challenging behaviors that we do see um you know i can only speak from the early childhood uh perspective but those challenging behaviors have been really really tricky especially after post pandemic you know it's it's been really tricky so i know there's some good data that is just being studied right now and in just a couple of years we're gonna see some really fascinating data points coming yeah. out
1: i know people don't believe certain things until the data comes out as if they right? there aren't any truth to that so
0: mm-hmm. you know as if people aren't on the ground actually seeing the things happening and actually experiencing yep. these things exactly. um So, you know, speaking of, you know, you mentioned, you know, just being in the classroom and seeing these attention spans, you know, how is that kind of affecting your, you know, day to day in the classroom, especially working with, you know, young elementary school students? Um, You know, how does that impact your curriculum planning? And how does that impact the way that you approach education in general?
1: So the way that is, at first, it was tricky for me. My undergrad was in history, and I love history, right? So the way that history is usually taught is very lecture style in college and even growing up, it was very lecture style. So what's fascinating is that even though I did switch majors, art became a very big component of my teaching pedagogy and teaching Mm -hmm. style. I would say that I'm an arts-integrated teacher, that's how I first started. I had the opportunity to, when I was still at Howard, to be a art coordinator at an after school program here in D.C. So I got to practice certain things with incorporating art, but then some, just not, hey, some arts and crafts like that. It would be like learning and art, something that had to do with mm-hmm. history and art, you know. And once I got into the classroom, I, like I said, I took those risks of, hmm, how do I take this concept? How do we use art in this? How do we get both realms to kind of fuse together, right? Mm -hmm. Then the first school that I actually taught in was a quote-unquote arts integration school. They were trying their hardest to be arts integrated. However, they had a plethora of access to other resources, the Phillips Collection, which is here in DC, the Kennedy Center, which is here in DC. So I had an opportunity to go to a lot of workshops, sessions, um, professional development, so I could learn about different art integrated methods, skills that really, really, really were beneficial to my toolbox and then just got me more curious to try new things. So all that being said, I say all that because that is, that helps me engage kids. I wish it could be every day, but this is a magic school bus, and I ain't got the sauce like that. But, you know, maybe every two months, I uh, put a project together. Currently, right now, I know Hispanic Latinx Heritage Month is done. I was informing my students about the aftermath of Puerto Rico and how there are a lot of towns still affected so they did something in the art class i read them different books and i said you know what this isn't like i felt as if i didn't accomplish enough and that the students didn't really get connected like it just felt surface level so we were also learning about natural disasters in science i've been having the kids build these little paper house models and then putting them in making different neighborhoods i have different groups making different neighborhoods and they would have to put them in an array so that incorporated multiplication then they have to make word math word problems about their neighborhoods with the array right um and then they get to decorate it and then on top of what they learn they get to use their creativity to think about hmm, how can we make these neighborhoods safe for an upcoming hurricane you know because Puerto Rico and a lot of the other Caribbean islands are just more prone to get hit by hurricanes. So, what are some things that we that they can do, the kids, do to kind of design and model it? And in my classroom, the groups of kids that I already had prior to this project are the architects, builders, and the engineers. So I was kind of just showing them this is real world. This is in the real world, this is what those individuals and those people with those roles actually have to do. They build the models, they Mm -hmm. have the conversations, they get creative, blah, blah, blah. So that's what we're in the process of doing. And that kind of gets it more engaging when you get more Mm -hmm. hands-on and it gets to tap into their creativity as well. I would say that engages them and that it's also a limited amount of technology that they have to use, you know? So
0: Mm
1: -hmm. it relies more on their creativity.
0: That is so amazing. And really taking in, you know, real life experiences, experiences that, you know, people are actually out there doing. They're actually out there, you know, doing these things in the real world. So bringing that into the classroom, it also connects to what those students are also seeing in their community or seeing in their home and really helps them to be engaged with the curriculum because it's not just sit there while I tell you about these things to learn. I think, you know, in my history classes or in any of my classes, really, the ones that are the most memorable and the ones that stand out to me are when the curriculum was engaging, when it was, I could be actively in a part of it, or I was learning about something that I was super interested in, which was kind of rare, but (laughs) unless it was something that was special interest of mine, or I was a part of it, or there was that art component to it, right? Um, I was also a very creative kid. So I, I loved art, anything that had creative, and I could do things with was something that really stood out to me. And I know for students, you know, that's kind of how they get engaged. That's how they learn by doing things, by being a part of things, by, um, you know, opening their horizons and learning about things in different ways, going back to our, you know, learning styles, even incorporating our different learning styles into our curriculum is another way to help keep students engaged in, in topics and keep them wanting to learn more and having that natural curiosity and that hunger for learning is so incredible.
1: Yeah, Um, Yeah, definitely. mm
0: -hmm. And so I think there's a lot of reason why I did want to reach out to you because I know you have, you know, a lot of experience with that project-based learning, which is essentially kind of what you were describing about how you were keeping your students engaged is through this idea of project-based learning. So what is that? How would you explain that to someone who didn't know what project-based learning is?
1: Mm. So Project-based learning is an umbrella term in which there are a lot of techniques, a lot of activities that can fit under that umbrella. So don't quote me. I've done project-based and I've had conversations about like, now oh, what's project-based? Like even most recently, I'm on a, a team here in D.C. working with the district about trying to... Push more projects district-wide. So it's like a multi-year project, but I would say from the work that I've done, project-based learning is essentially taking an idea, a concept that students are trying to learn, making it apply to the real world, and that can come in various ways. So that can come through kids getting some kind of exposure outside of the classroom, learning. So exposure outside, like leaving the actual school building, getting real world type of application. Um, Thinking about having this grand question and trying to find solutions to it through various different routes, right? Whether that be creating and building things, whether that be Making videos, which is still creating things, whether that be taking action and making proposals and sending it to your mayor or your local government leader. So there's different varieties like that. The type of project-based learning that I've done, that I have felt, that I felt very firm in, and I've been doing it for a long time, has to do with more on the longs a lot more along the lines of experiential learning technique. Mm-hmm. So doing role plays in my classroom and simulations in my classroom the kids to kind of dive into these positions where they are part of whatever concept that we're learning about. It's usually that is more like on the social studies and mm-hmm. or for them to feel, um, because a lot of humans learn more through stories and narratives, right? Before, even now people watch movies and watch, listen to podcasts, most of the learning comes from other people's stories. So, mm-hmm. you know, history is, it has the word story in there, right? But these narratives get passed down from generation to generation. Um, what we do gets captured in a story form. Disney makes billions of dollars off creating different stories. So, yeah, that is the the tech, those are the techniques that I say I would be more grounded in because I've done them before, but project-based learning overall like I was saying, started going loops. I got to practice on being more concise. But project-based is just project-based learning is taking these ideas taking an issue, a dilemma, a question, and trying to solve it in a non-traditional, non-traditional to the USA Mm -hmm. education system approach. So being hands-on, leaving the traditional classroom, getting some visitors to come in, I would say those are components Project-based learning. It's hard for me to get it all in one sentence. That's the difficult part.
0: I I get it. There's there's big, broad topics too that I I feel really passionate about. That sounds like, well, what is it? And I'm like, okay, well, take a seat because we're going to talk about everything. Yeah. <laughs> I can't just condense this into one thing. There's so much nuance. There's so many things. There's so many p- bits and pieces to this. How can I just tell you one thing? Yeah. I get it. <laughs> um, that was that was great. I I love that because. Project-based learning, like you said, it it is pretty kind of umbrella term and there's all these different aspects or ways that you can work within that. Um, In my last school, so I worked in a Reggio Emilia based preschool and that was my favorite preschool to to work with Um, and it was just, it was wonderful. And we did a lot of project learning within those types of classrooms. So really, like you said, posing a question to the students. And as you mentioned earlier, sometimes I come in with my idea of curriculum and what we're going to talk about and what we're going to do, and the kids don't care. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I could not care less about the question that I'm posing, could not care less about the activity. Um, So I quickly learned (laughs) to follow the children's lead. Um, So I kind of shifted and I was like, okay, let me observe. What are they actually interested in? What do they, what do they have questions about? Rather than here's the question that I have that we are going to learn about now works a little bit with with older students but when, when you got two-year-olds if they don't want to do it they're not going to do it so <laughs> you gotta you gotta get creative yeah. <laughs> and um I started learning okay well what are they interested in and how can I grow off of that how can I build in all of these you know in, in early childhood we have these different domains that that kind of leads our curriculum in the way that we do so you know obviously social, emotional, cognitive, gross motor, fine motor, all these different domains that we look at for um, young students and then taking that and also what they're interested in. So if they were interested in transportation, like most preschool students are, they love cars, they love bicycles, boats, planes, anything that moves from point A to point B, they are super interested in, especially the garbage truck. I don't know what it is about preschool students and the garbage truck, but it's it's a celebrity every time. (laughs) Trash day is the best day day ever. (laughs) Um, So I might observe that my students were looking at or feeling really excited about transportation things. Then I'm like, okay, that's my end. That's what I'm going to start asking questions about. So now I'm asking a little bit of questions during circle time about what are their questions? Are, Are they curious about how things move? Are they curious about... Are they curious about speed? Is it it fun to them because it goes fast? Can I then create a science experiment where we are learning about speed, where we're learning about these different things using the cars, right? Or is it just the colors? Or is it just, what is it that they're interested in? And then really growing from that. So in one classroom, we had a bus bench like right outside of our window. So the kids would just sit there and watch the bus pretty much all day, watch people getting on and off the bus. And so that led us to a really great conversation about, you know, who rides the bus? Have you ridden the bus before? How do you get to school? What does that look like? And from there, it just went to so many different avenues that we started to grow from, from that one question. And, you know, their their questions started to branch out and we started to do, and as you said, you can incorporate all these other different aspects into one specific project. So we had art projects based off of transportation. We had Uh, literature books based off transportation we had manipulatives based off of transportation and it was something that gained their interest and they also got to learn a lot about science about the science of the mechanics of how they moved they got to we got to talk to an actual mechanic and that was really fun (laughs) um and it just really deepened that learning to a way that i don't think it would have if i had just been okay this month it's transportation month so we're going to learn about these things and the next month we're going to do this right it's it was well, for early childhood it was really following their lead because they'll they'll tell you what they're interested in <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They'll, they'll be very outspoken about what they're interested in and what, what they're not interested in <laughs> yeah. sometimes you gotta fail but sometimes you win and it feels really good to it
1: <laughs> it does and that's that's part of life also right however
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know we aren't given grace and I know there are a lot of people that would probably disagree with that, that teachers shouldn't be exp- trying out new things with a group of students or whatnot. However, when there are certain institutions such as Harvard, I've gone to a few prof- PDs from Harvard and some of the things that they've mm-hmm. said, I'm like, they got this from other things. Like, They either got this from other ethnic groups groups who have been doing this for years and they rebranded it or like I've seen this in somebody else's classroom called this or they didn't have a name for it. They just didn't monetize off of it or try to repurchase it or rebrand it. So what's I work at a Reggio Emilia school currently too. So that's that's fascinating.
0: Hi there, editing Brittany. Um, I realized that we got really excited during this conversation when we were talking about Reggio Emilia and completely forgot to take a moment to explain what that was. Um, So Reggio Emilia is a philosophy of education that grew from a real place, Reggio Emilia in Italy after the Second World War. Um, It's an approach to education that is very constructivist. It's student-centered, student-driven, and follows a lot of experiential learning. Uh, hence why we're both talking about it in this podcast uh, where we're bringing up uh, project-based learning um, it's a program that we both worked in we're both really excited about but I wanted to take a moment to just kind of explain what that is because we just took it we just took the ball and just started running um, and not everyone knows what Reggio Emilia is so I'll also link some things in our show notes so if you're curious to learn more about uh, Reggio Emilia it'll be there um, and then we'll get back to the episode. So. Reggio Regio schools. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. They're they're the best. I think if I were gonna go back to teaching again, I think it would probably have to be another Regio school. I've worked in, you know, public funded schools, I've worked in other privately funded schools, I've done um full inclusion schools, which I also loved, but my heart always goes back to Regio Amelia. I love it. I love the philosophy, I love the history of it. I love the, you know, able, the ability to do project-based learning, to be able to do play-based learning. I just, it's great. <laughs>
1: it's, it's, I'm not sure what age or what grade this Reggio school that you worked in went to, but mine goes up to fifth grade. And I find it, we have found it to be trickier, to implement yeah. some of the core core um, routines or the core actions of Reggio, oh. especially from third grade up, because this is where we start the standardized testing. Feel me? So yeah. Yeah. that, in incorporation with just it's the way that it's ordered, mm-hmm. kids are especially when it comes to reading. Kids are learning how to read by second grade, mm-hmm. uh, or they're learning to read, and then by third grade, they're reading to learn, right? Those, those are the expectations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like it yeah. flips right there. That's mm-hmm. when that's that's when it changes direction. That's
0: true. And a lot of
1: kids aren't there yet. They're still learning to read, so mm-hmm. that puts them at a deficit. So that. It's overemphasized versus mm-hmm. incorporating some of these projects and taking time to allow kids to be creative. And it's, it's a hard balance because kids were used to mm-hmm. that in the earlier grades. And now the expectations of ELA and mathematics has mm-hmm. increased tremendously, right?
0: Yeah. And Seemingly just overnight for them. Overnight. Yeah. So... Mm -hmm. As I've been
1: teaching third grade for so many years, I've come to really like that because it is a pivotal year. It is, you know, they have so much as you've done work with the school to prison pipeline, right? There's Mm -hmm. a lot of data talking about how students perform in third grade and Mm -hmm. their trajectory throughout education here in the American city education system you know it's, it's jack it's messed up it's messed up so when that data comes out all oh, by third grade you know they felt the meant they felt to mention everything that came before third grade so with the emphasis on third grade yeah it's it's been tricky so sometimes, sometimes tricky. as we mentioned um it's a balancing act for me especially how much projects do i want to do when is the right time to yeah. do it and I'm not, I'm not perfect at all. I'm not, I'm not yeah. the enlightened one.
0: <laughs> Although they expect us teachers to be perfect at all times and to always have the right answers and always do the right things. And we're not, we're just people. <laughs> yeah. We're just people out here peopling, like, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, I'm trying, I'm trying my hardest.
0: We trying, exactly, exactly. You just, you just secretly uncovered one of my favorite things. <laughs> It's not my favorite thing, but it's just like something that just like irks me about reading and teaching children to read is that we do expect that shift from that second grade to third grade and that expectation that, all right, now you know how to read. And now we're going to, you know, read for comprehension and doing all these different things. When we actually look at the data and we look at their brain chemistry and we look at how students learn. And, you know, by third grade, they're usually about eight years old, right? Like, before then they're they're just reading not really even reading they're just memorizing patterns at that point it's it's just pattern recognition and then we expect them to then read to comprehend when they get to third grade when they haven't even been reading before then
1: some of these kids they they don't even they don't even remember to tie their shoes or they don't even (laughs) they don't even remember where they left their jacket but then now Mm -hmm. it's like oh we expect them to read two-step word problems and figure out when to add and subtract Mm -hmm. and all these various steps. And for real, honestly, you know, this is me talking representing myself. I feel that those expectations pushing kids that much is unrealistic and it's not age appropriate whatsoever. Mm -hmm. It's not age appropriate whatsoever. And there's a lot of people, there's a lot of, uh, companies and systems that get away with it here in this country. However, I still work for the system, right? So I try to do my best to I try to I try to do my best to kind of combat that or to kind of just bring some kind of light and balance to that. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I am not the enlightened one but <laughs> I I try different things.
0: And that that's so important and yeah it's like so in early childhood i don't know if this is the same thing for for K through 12 um, but we but we talk a lot about uh developmentally appropriate practices so is our are the curriculum that we're bringing in are the activities that we're bringing in are our expectations of our students is it developmentally appropriate for the students that we have in our classroom right now so you know, can I reasonably expect a three-year-old to sit down in his desk and be quiet for 30 minutes? Not really. <laughs> that's that's not developmentally appropriate. Their attention span's not there. Um, it's going to be a lot more stress on me as the educator to sit there and yell at that student multiple times to sit down in their desk when the more developmentally appropriate thing would be to not have them sitting down for 30 minutes and expecting them to be quiet and to be behaved, right? You're going to get behaviors at that point because the they're not they're not ready for that type of activity yet, right? Um and so when I see that we're we're you know doing reading a certain way or we're doing you know other activities a certain way, it's but is this developmentally appropriate for the children in the room right now? And we also know that the students over the last couple of years, even before COVID, but students over the last couple of years have just been through a lot. There's been a lot of shifts, there's been a lot of changes, there's been a lot of expectations, right? And so What was developmentally appropriate for students 10 years ago might not even be the same for the students that we have right now in our classroom, right? And so it's important that we're actually looking at who's in our classroom right now and what are their developmental needs and how can we best support them in their learning? Because it's going to be different. It's going to differ from class to class. I've had classes where my students on a Monday were a completely different vibe than my students on Tuesday. (laughs) I had some of the same students. But it was just, it was a whole different vibe of students. We had to do a whole circle time, just kind of had to be completely different for Tuesday, Thursday group than it did Monday, Wednesday, Friday
1: group. Let me ask you, I was going to say, let me me ask you a question. Uh, Mm -hmm. When you were in the classroom, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: you taught like, you taught around like uh, three and four year olds or even younger?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So we did like preschool. So that's between two, two and a half to five is, is preschool age. And then you have infant toddlers as well. Um, So I've taught all, I've taught all the way up to like age five. And then I've done work with K through 12 students as well. But my specific teaching experience is for, um, you know, under five. And then my favorite group to teach was two-year-olds. I love me some two-year-olds. I'll do that all day. (laughs) So
1: so from your experience, Mm -hmm. did you see you don't have to put a percent to it or anything, but was it common that you saw two, two to five-year-olds on a tablet or some kind of, techno- some kind of technology, in a, especially in the last few years?
0: Um, not necessarily in the classroom, but based on like the conversations that we would have. Mm -hmm. they for sure have been on either a tablet or they've been on, you know, a laptop or a game because they'll talk about, oh, we're on Roblox or we're doing this or my favorite character is this. And I'm like, you were three. Why do you know that?
1: (laughs) And the the thing is a few years ago, I read this book by a molecular biologist, but it was, it's called Brain Rules for Babies. And basically he was talking about how technology, tech. Devices are not great for the brain of a baby. They can't differentiate what's real and what's not, right? Mm -hmm. So, exposing kids, and that's what I was, to go back to what I was saying earlier about, you know, where people's brains are developmentally by 25, Mm -hmm. like all that's out the window, I believe, until some Mm -hmm. acclaimed professor with merit does Mm -hmm. some kind of study, then people are going to believe it. But if, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm just a third grade teacher, whatever. (laughs) <laughs> but that just knowing that, especially after the pandemic or during the pandemic, you had mm-hmm. preschool kids on a tablet, on technology all the time, mm-hmm. and, and that, that type of interaction, right? It's not real, mm-hmm. right? What they were getting away with. And then afterwards, when school was done, they were still on their tablets, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm seeing these things and that is their, that's now their reality. Right. Yep. So it, it, it's, it's hard for, um, it's just more difficult in the classroom now, mm-hmm. um, because of that, because kids have already experienced that. Even if you're in a household where there are no video games, no tablets, no TVs, and, you know, parents are trying to do their best.
0: kids getting on social media and how is that impacting their long-term you know how's that impacting their their long-term kind of success how is that impacting their brain development there's so much out there that could definitely like we know that our brains are very you know highly plastic so it's like they're able to shift and change based on our environment based on what we're learning based on what we're doing so it's a lot. I don't know, man. <laughs> I could go on for days. No, for that's it. another
1: conversation. For another
0: it's day. a whole other conversation about social media and the developing brain. <laughs> but let's switch gears a little bit. So, um, in addition to the project-based learning, you know, you've mentioned a lot of kind of social justice aspects that you also um, incorporate into your teaching. So, you know, how have you kind of seen that role of project-based learning and social justice kind of? How is that? How does that seem impacting your students?
1: So, I think that students, especially young kids, really want to help out and feel as if they have the power to make a difference, right? So, as you were saying, what are kids interested in? If they were interested in sanitation workers by three years, three year old, three years old, and then they find out that the sanitation workers aren't getting paid enough and they can't help their family so they can't pick up the trash anymore. Those mm-hmm. kids are going to be upset. They're going to come up with some kind of resolution for that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think, for example, when I was introducing the app, doing some things around Hispanic slash Latin X month, that talking about Puerto Rico, like I said, it felt kind of surface level, things that I was doing, reading, showing in the videos, but them to understand and kind of have empathy and say like after five years after this hurricane there's still some student there are still some kids your age that don't have access to water to electricity mm-hmm. to food to shelter you know like what how would that affect you you know so we had different conversations like that um and what I've noticed too is that Being in D.C., D.C. is people think it's a very diverse city, but it's actually very segregated in terms of in like the wealth gap is tremendous. So throughout my teaching experience here in D.C., kids feel empowered to stop certain things based on their experiences already in third grade, so. I've had kids that are like, hey, let's stop. We need to stop global warming, right? And they feel very motivated to do that. I have some kids who either have seen firsthand or just been in close proximity to gun violence, right? And They want to stop gun violence. Just naturally, I feel that kids are... They are affected, because they're humans. They are affected by things that happen around them. Or they hear what is negatively affecting the people around them that they care about, and they absorb that. That becomes part of their identity as well. So, as you were saying earlier, find out what the kids are interested in. I, I do this thing, it's called the Funds of Knowledge, in the beginning of the year, it was actually, you know, rolled out with younger students, but it's to learn more about the families and the cultures of the students that teachers and educators will be working with. I would advise any educator to do that, to look that at the funds of knowledge and mm-hmm. um, send it out to parents before the school year starts. So then you know how to get parents involved and you just know about the culture of the students mm-hmm. that you will be working with. It, it It's really helpful and insightful. So... All that to say, um, if you if you know, hey, you got students who come from single family homes or things of that nature, they're gonna feel mm-hmm. empowered of like keeping a family together. Right? So mm-hmm. Yeah, this, the students are going through it too. Adults go through it, life be life for adults, but life be life for kids too. So Everybody everybody has their own things that they're working through, even kids. Mm-hmm. So um, I think it just takes sometimes,
0: because I noticed
1: that there was a trend like, kids are like, oh, let's save the turtles, let's save the turtles. And I'm like, mm-hmm. they are real human beings that need support as well in this city, probably three blocks away from here. So I think it takes sometimes educators the courage to introduce kids and you talked about you know where they are developmentally to introduce Mm -hmm. kids to sometimes what may seem like tough conversations and tough topics because Mm -hmm. if you try to hide them and shelter them for too long once they become an adult and they start to learn about that stuff they're like nah that can't be Mm -hmm. true or it's either it's usually nah that can't be true or it's Mm -hmm. why didn't I know about this before and their whole schema of reality is shattered I mean, sometimes there's some some in between, right? Some some ability to grow and become curious and come to your own understanding. But yeah, I would I would definitely say kids are going through their own stuff. They feel empowered to do things. It's up to the educator to kind of get that, but then also exposing them to different realities of what's going on in the world, right? I don't think Kids should be sheltered, but then also you shouldn't just go out of pocket. If you are if an educator ever has a question like, "Huh, should I try this or not?" They should definitely ask other well-respected educators first. I'm not saying, "Hey, just dive in and take that risk." I'm, I am not liable for your <laughs> your job security or anything like that. <laughs> so
0: don't
1: do that. <laughs> yeah, don't and don't take my word for it. I can't hire you, but um yeah so that's that's really it with social justice things it's just like and I think that anything can have a social justice approach but there are different components for it. teaching I'm part of an organization well there's an organization here in DC that even if you're not in DC you can go on and look at some of their resources but I'm part of their social justice educator group. I'm um, a co-facilitator, but it's called Teaching for Change, and um, yes. they they do a lot of, we do a lot of great, great work in terms of taking certain concepts and thinking about being action-oriented, how we can bring that back to our classroom, collaborating and planning. We do some of our sessions monthly online, and then sometimes we have them on site. Like having a, a on-site experience as well. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure if I answered your question or if I'm just
0: <laughs> rambling
1: going around.
0: I mean, I feel like I learned a lot, so <laughs> <laughs> I'm solid. But no, I think that's that's really great. Like you said, social justice can be an aspect, any aspect of education can be a social justice aspect, right? And it's all just about. The questions that we're asking and what those students are interested in. And there are ways to have, you know, like you said, conversations that can seem really tricky or can seem really difficult or really hard for students, right? You know, especially, you know, I went to school in LA and so I taught, I was, was teaching in LA for a little bit. And the school that we were at, there was a lot of, of home, homelessness around us. You know, that's LA and it's a, it's a major issue there. Yeah. And so the students are, are seeing homeless people on a fairly regular basis they're seeing you know people on the streets they're seeing people have you know just mental health issues and they're asking questions because it's a part of their everyday. but you know sometimes people would think just because they're in preschool or because they're two or three that they're not ready to engage in that conversation but that's a part of their reality yeah so what are we actually teaching them about these issues that it's okay to ignore it that it's okay to not engage in it to not ask questions about it Right, we need to be really, really intentional when we are working with young children because, again, that's something that they're seeing every day. Why would we not talk about that? And we don't have to go into, you know, these like really deep kind of background things, especially with young young children. Right, we gotta do it in a developmentally appropriate way. So, where where are they developmentally? What are they kind of capable of understanding right now? And breaking that down, and then we can start posing questions of, well what would you do about this or what do you think we can do about this and asking those questions and kind of seeing their problem solving come up and you know i think we underestimate students a lot especially early childhood and you know technically early childhood does go up to about like 8 years old that's so like third grade and then you go on after that but we underestimate these young people, we underestimate them so much in their capacity to understand, their capacity to have empathy, their capacity to problem solve and think critically about things. We underestimate them so much to the point that we don't actually engage them in these really important conversations that when we do, it lends its way into everything, right? It's all of the developmental domains, all of our um, teaching strategies, all of those like standardized things that we need to meet when we take a school justice component, it does that just in a little bit of a different way, but it does that. It, it, it reaches these students in a very different way that I just don't feel like we are engaging with them. And it's, it's sad because they have a lot of really great ideas and they want to be a part of this conversation. And what happens is exactly what you said. We ignore it until we get to the point where we feel like, okay, now you're, you're at the age where we can have a conversation about race, but now they've had many, many years to sit on these kind of internal biases. They've had many years to sit on these prejudices that they've been hearing from media, hearing from other people. They've had years upon years to sit on that. So now you want to teach them about race. Well, now you gotta backtrack a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now we gotta now we gotta unlearn some things that we've already learned. Whereas if we're having these conversations all along in a way, again, that's developmentally appropriate, and of course, you know, speak with other educators who do this and make sure you're doing it in a way that is not harmful to anybody. Because um, sometimes, if we do these things incorrectly, we can be unintentionally causing harm. And we don't want that, right? It's important that we're able to have opportunities to try things out when it comes to our curriculum. But we also do have to be very, very intentional about what we are trying out. And part of that intention is making sure that we are doing a lot of deep research about what we are what our ideas are we're talking to our admin we're talking to other educators like do you build yourself a teaching community yeah. <laughs> first yeah. Yeah. before you just go out be doing stuff but yeah. these conversations are really important and they can really help young kids cuz young kids to be a part of their educational journey I, I have one What's that?
1: No, I was saying yeah I agree with a lot of the comments Statements are you would just make. It.
0: Thank you. I went, on a little, I went on a little tangent there. I was like, you know, I am passionate. We're talking yeah. about social justice. It on. Keep it going. Keep
1: going. There's no Thank speed you. camera here. Keep it going.
0: Hey. <laughs> but I know that you're on the East Coast and um, I can barely exist after a certain time here. So <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I have one last question for you, and that is how do you reimagine education?
1: Mm. So how do I reimagine education? Uh, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I think that I could speak about how I would wanna reimagine K through 12 education. I really Mm -hmm. thought that this pandemic would shift things because the system that we have right now is very outdated. It's still Mm -hmm. very factory style, um, in which there aren't many cities in this country that run off a of factory as a source of economy anymore. Like Those are all out of date. So that style of teaching is very prominent. It still exists. And I think that there needs to be more, right? I think
0: mm-hmm.
1: I'm just gonna say some ideas, right? I'm gonna romanticize how I envision certain things. I think that there needs to be like a 13th grade. I think mm-hmm. that Certain things need to be spread out. There needs to be more emphasis on social-emotional learning. I think that there needs to be more emphasis on field trips. I live in Washington, D.C. I just went on a field trip. I brought my students to our local government building, and it was a task. It took me two months to get all this stuff situated, and it's difficult for teachers. It's such a a hassle. I know some teachers that had to pay their substitute when they had to go on a field trip. Like, it's, it's, it's crazy. So even getting kids to, to feel and learn in the real world comes out of cost to a teacher, you know? Mm-hmm. So for more easier access with, with bringing kids out of the classroom, I think that also there's an overemphasis on standardized testing that students need to have some kind of digital portfolio that travels with mm-hmm. them from, Whenever they start their school and it goes to fifth grade, then whenever they choose to go to whatever middle school, they're able to present that. Boom, if I was in the middle school, they're able to present that with when they're inquiring and looking at different high schools, and it'll go all the way to college. So it will weigh more than an SAT or ACT Mm. and things of that nature, right? And then you can really see the timeline of this child through the different projects, presentations, and just a plethora of different things that they've been able to do. right? Uh, Also, I think that it would be great if there were these kind of like fusion grades. It would be like a first second grade together, a second third grade together, a third fourth grade together. So kids that are doing really well with in that second grade, third grade class in math, they may be doing a portion of the day or a certain concept with the third grade group, right? Then you know you have the other second grade group and then vice versa. It'll be really fluid about where kids are learning, right? We are told to differentiate certain kids, but still give them grade level stuff. But if a kid is not getting this grade level stuff, we're still pushing them on the factory line. You know, I had a I had a parent ask me that a few like two months ago, like if my child is this far behind Already in the beginning of the year, how did they get here? And I said, to be blunt with you, it's a flaw in the education system where kids keep on getting pushed and they're not not—they're not ready. They're not ready to get to that next level yet, but they still go down the assembly line. Mm-hmm. And um, I would say that there there needs to be more respect for educators in other countries around the world. There's much more respect for educators. And I know this next comment is going to sound really, really trivial and really small, but I think that teachers need more perks. For example, Mm -hmm. if for most of the times, I would say 90% of the times where I was running late to the airport, it was because it had something to do with education. Whether I was talking to a parent, grading papers at the school late, Mm -hmm. I'm almost just happened maybe a month ago, I was going to San Antonio and I was like doing parent teacher conferences. And I looked at the time and I was like, I told the parents, I had to catch a flight to San Antonio in about an hour. They were like, okay. And I was like, I'm sorry, I gotta go. But this is like at 5.30 PM already. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. and I say that because when people who work for the army and military, Hats off to them, all respect. When they are late to like get into a plane, they wait. The plane waits for them, you know. Come on, give some teachers some kind of grace and courtesy. Give us a 10-15 minute wait, you know. We're trying to help and change the world. We're trying to help this country. So I think even a perk like that would be cool, as well as other perks, right? But mm-hmm. um, yeah. I could go on and on and on, romanticizing about how I would <laughs> want education to be. I would want there to be more um, more opportunities where students are getting paid, especially if they come from uh, low economic low economic backgrounds, because most times when kids are not attending school, they're trying to find other ways to get money. So mm-hmm. if you can, if you could lure them in, because it's difficult to realize, hmm. In 10, 15 years, if I do well in school, then I can make a lot of money versus Mm -hmm. I could make a quote unquote, a lot of money right now, right? So being able to counter that type of narrative um, with something better, right? If a kid is skipping Mm -hmm. school to try to get money, then keep them in school with the same amount of money that they would probably be getting from doing whatever other activities. I think that we would also save money with the the prison system, you know, because a lot of people mm-hmm. get very, yeah, they get, they get very angry knowing how much money is spent on the prison system. However, we still had the prison system and, yep. you know, there are other pro- proactive ways of avoiding that, but they don't want, they think that that's too much money. So it's, it's a lot, it's all intertwined, but. There's a lot of things I like romantic romanticize in terms of envisioning and reimagining education mm-hmm. here in America.
0: Yes, and we need we need more educators who are dreaming and dreaming big. <laughs> yes, give educators more perks. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I hear about all the perks people get for working at Google, I'm like, oh, yeah,
1: what? yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just,
0: just just a little Come bit on. of perks, you know, like. Come on. Come on. Yeah, just, just, just a little bit of perks. like it was always nice when I would you know come in, like a student's parent had bought me some coffee, and I'm like,
1: "See? it's little thing. so
0: simple. you bought me coffee today, like this right here. <laughs> Listen,
1: it's a little thing. If every airline said, "Hey, we give 10 or fifteen percent to teachers, I bet you psh, teachers would take more flights. Teachers would yeah. be on those flights
0: i mean yeah just just little perks give us little perks give us like some free airline coupons or something like that just
1: exactly or
0: let, let us into the um what is it the airport uh lounge you know give us give us lounge access
1: <laughs> right You're right hey,
0: like, hey. If i gotta be at the airport at least like make it comfy <laughs> absolutely
1: absolutely i want
0: i want fun things okay <laughs> teachers want to have fun too <laughs> um before we go is there anything else that you wanted to share uh with the audience is there any uh social media anywhere um the audience can reach out to you or see what you're up to
1: uh yeah so i post quite a few things people can add me on linkedin my name is rafael mm-hmm. bonhomme uh, my I post things on my instagram page well it's mm-hmm. my educated page it's called bonhomme class b-o-n-h-o-m-m-e C-L-A-S-S, that's how you spell it. I post a lot of things that I do in my classroom. You can reach out to me via LinkedIn or through the Instagram page, follow the Instagram page. I would say also the organizations that I talked about, Teaching for Change, Mm -hmm. are great in terms of social justice. There's a lot of other organizations that have worked with Teaching for Change, but in D.C., I would say that Teaching for Change is the number one they do it, we do it. I say we because I've done a lot of work with them for so long. Mm. So I could just say, I could put me and we as as the collective. But you're, we, you're
0: part of it at this point. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you go on the website, you'll see my face up there.
0: But oh, Yeah, you're yeah, part yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That count?
1: So we have done a lot of stuff in the district, and the people who have been there, great people, great values. They're not just trying to monetize off of people, you know. It's mm-hmm. straight grassroots to the people, to the educators, social justice, um, but mm-hmm. also has a lot of resources, especially when it comes to children's books, because they're, mm-hmm. yeah, it has, they've been putting out diverse lists of children's books for decades, mm-hmm. for decades. Um, but yeah, 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 and. You know, project-based learning, experiential learning. I do work with the AFT, so I don't know if any of your listeners are. They're probably part of the AFT as well, the uh, national one of the national unions. But we're we do some um, PDS that have to do with experiential learning and civics and things of that nature. So, yeah.
0: Awesome. Thank you. And I'll, I'll put all of those links in the show notes as well. So if you're curious to see anything that Raphael's been working on or want to reach out, I'll put those all in the show notes. I want to thank you so much for joining me today. This conversation was just it was so just warm and refreshing and amazing. Yeah, thank
1: you. I feel
0: energized. <laughs> um, I always love talking to other people about social justice and just education and what we can be doing to just make the world a better place and to make education a better place um so just thank you so much and thanks oh,
1: thank you
0: thank you thank you for tuning into conscious pathways don't forget to like follow and subscribe to conscious pathways wherever you get your podcast and please leave a rating or review it really does help the podcast to grow and reach more listeners just like you and until next time i'll be back for more con- for transformative conversations in education And until then, navigate your conscious journey with kindness and courage, and I'll see you there. Bye!